Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Joel Alcock. He is a cannabis cultivation consultant. Uh, He's worked in the cannabis industry for some time. And we're going to talk to him a little bit about the insight he's gained, what he sees going on in the industry, and basically what he's learning about cannabis and the cannabis industry. So I'm excited for this. I've always loved talking with folks that are kind of digging into various aspects of cannabis and and learning what it takes to really run these businesses. So with that, Joel, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of the podcast and uh, happy to be a guest today. Yeah, thank you for me on. Appreciate it. So let's do a little bit of background first. So how, you know, what was your professional background? How did cannabis come up? Give us a little bit of the story. Sure. So uh, professionally, before my uh, entree into the cannabis industry, I owned and operated uh, a couple of air quality businesses, mold remediation, biological remediation, basically making sick buildings healthy for the occupants. Mm-hmm. That that background has served me pretty well in the cannabis industry where obviously 
powdery mildew and microbial concerns are, are a major problem in the uh, the cultivation of cannabis. So that real world experience in that industry kind of uh, helped me transition as far as being an effective cultivator and dealing with the environmental concerns that cultivators deal with every day. I got my my start in the cannabis industry actually in, in a kind of uh, in a tragic way, so to speak. My dad was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer back in uh, early 1993. Going through the traditional chemo and radiation treatments, he was experiencing a lot of nausea, weight loss, difficulty eating. Yeah. And uh, I had a good friend that was a uh, an oncologist that was not treating my dad, but he was uh, an oncologist that I, I was pretty friendly with. And I, I asked him, you know, you know, kind of off the cuff, what could I do to help my father regain his appetite, gain some weight, and you know, be stronger to be able to battle the disease. Yeah. And uh, he said to me, Joel, you know, I can't recommend it professionally because it's illegal, but if it were me, I would get my father some marijuana. Yeah. And at the time, this is back in 93, this is prior to California uh, enacting their medical marijuana laws. Really, there was no legal medical marijuana anywhere nationally. And at the time, I had been an athlete, you know, throughout high school and, and earlier, I'd been an athlete and I didn't really feel comfortable having that discussion with my dad. I, I felt like it was going to change the way he looked at me. And in one of the worst decisions I ever made, I decided to not bring up the subject with my father. And from there on, kind of watched him slowly disintegrate until he ultimately passed. And that was a huge regret for me. It was uh, always something I felt like I should have broached with him. I was selfish in not bringing up the topic and not you know, procuring some cannabis for him. So I was a native of Rhode Island at the time. So when Rhode mm -hmm. Island enacted their medical marijuana law, about 13 years later in, in uh, 2006, I quickly became a licensed medical marijuana caregiver. Rhode Island's cannabis law allowed for the cultivation of cannabis by patients and their registered caregivers. Uh, I became one of the first licensed caregivers in the state of Rhode Island and basically started cultivating cannabis and, and giving that cannabis away to patients in need. It was in 2009, the General Assembly in the state of Rhode Island uh, passed a, a piece of legislation allowing for the creation of three what they called medical marijuana compassion centers, basically vertically integrated dispensaries. Uh, I At that point, I uh, was a partner in a group that applied for and ultimately received a license to operate a vertically integrated dispensary in the state of Rhode Island. Uh, we were located in Providence, Rhode Island. That was the Thomas C. Slater Compassion Center. Uh, so I... Uh, Basically, we, we found a building, purchased a building, uh, built out the facility, and uh, opened our doors uh, in the state of Rhode Island. We were the first dispensary there, and I was uh, the director of cultivation as well as kind of overseeing all of what I call the back of the house departments, the manufacturing, the, the harvesting, trimming, packing, uh, testing, pretty much anything cannabis related, I was uh, ultimately in charge of at that, at that dispensary. Yeah. Uh, I stayed at the Slater Center uh, until early 2015 when uh, the state of Delaware put out a RFA for the creation of a pilot compassion center. They were going to have one dispensary in the state uh, for a period of two years, and then if the needs dictated, they would open up 
licensing to additional dispensaries. Uh, I co-founded a group, applied for that pilot license, and we were fortunate enough to be selected. And we opened our doors about, uh, I believe it was April of 2015, um, when we opened our doors. I served there as a vice president of the of the board, as well as a senior vice president, chief operating officer, and director of cultivation. Yeah. So I, I stayed at that dispensary where I was responsible for all of the cannabis touching departments uh, until March of 2018 when I uh, left there. I took a buyout from the company and left to come to New Jersey to apply for a dispensary license when New Jersey put out an RFA for uh, dispensary licenses. I uh, was part of a group that applied and was not fortunate enough to um, obtain a license. And pretty much since then, I've been serving as a cultivation consultant for a number of uh, dispensaries and commercial grows, wholesalers uh, in the cannabis industry in a, a number of states where I uh, basically oversee or, or, or consult on their cultivation with a really with a, uh, an eye in most cases for developing integrated pest management programs, helping them overcome environmental concerns, inf- infestations of insects, and other challenges that, that cultivators face in the grow rooms on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. And what, I guess, how, how have things evolved for you from the, the, you know, that first, the first dispensary in Rhode Island to today in terms of just kind of approach, technologies, strategies. I mean, where, where, how has the kind of the cultivation of cannabis um, evolved over the last, you know, 10, 15 years? Well, I think that's a great question, Bruce. I think, you know, there, there are a couple of ways that where I see the industry has really uh, matured and changed in, in some ways, obviously, for the better, in some ways, maybe not. Uh, what I have found is, you know, when I first started and, and we opened the first dispensary in Rhode Island, uh, you know, getting investment capital was a major challenge. Uh, traditional lenders such as banks, VC guys, you know, they, they wouldn't even answer your call. Um, and, you know, fast forward to 2020 and the industry is really awash in VC money. There's a, a you know, a multitude of multi-state operators that are really kind of dominating the industry. Um, in, in, you know, really in a corporate fashion. So I, I think what I've seen is the industry has really evolved from being a bunch of independent kind of mom and pop shops to really being folded into uh, the portfolios of a handful of, of multi-state operators. Now, there's, there's an upside to that, which is, you know, resources are much more available. Uh, you know, there's there's more money, investment capital in, in the industry, uh, operators are available to kind of tap into that cash and, and really, I guess, best practices from like the accounting and, and business management side. Um, as far as the cultivation uh, aspect of it, it, it's really come a long way. You know, when I started in 2006 as a caregiver, you know, most people were at the commercial level anyway, cultivating in soil and uh, really having a small craft or boutique type grows. And as the industry has evolved, um, obviously supply and demand has increased, you know, a hundredfold as more states come online with medical and recreational cannabis laws. 
So, we, you know, you see technology from big ag kind of infiltrate the cannabis space. You know, rather than reinventing the wheel, we've seen the influx of a lot of best practices from cultivation of other crops, other cash crops, kind of fold into this industry, which I, I think is a good thing. Technology-wise, whereas, you know, in 2010, 2012, 15, when I was operating large-scale commercial grows, you know, everybody was using high-pressure sodium lights and flour, metal halide lights and veg. And now what you're seeing is a lot of LED lighting, which is encouraging from a sustainability point of view. And really, the efficacy of those lights has increased immeasurably from when I first started, you know, r and d some LED lights back in, you know, 09 and 2010 to where they are now, where, you know, in good conscience, I couldn't recommend clients to use, you know, high-intensity discharge lighting anymore just because of the increased air conditioning and, and environmental control that those lights need and require, the cost of operation, the you know, the lighting cost, the electricity, just the LED, the gains LED lighting has made and the efficacy of those lights has really changed the game for a lot of cultivators. It's become a lot more energy efficient to use those. You require a lot less cooling, which ultimately further reduces the, the operating cost as well as the initial setup. So I think that's the main thing that I've seen is really the embrace of technology and growing outside of even just the LED lighting. People are going vertical, growing in multi-tiered racks, you know, really using a lot of software to analyze data. So it's really come a long way from, you know, the guy that's really just mixing up fruit in his basement, you know, hand water again <laughs> to automated, yeah. you know, really technologically advanced grows, which I think is great for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and, and it, you know, your kind of take or, or strategies around, you know, different kind of grows setups, you know, whether it's completely indoor or greenhouse or outdoor. I mean, wh- where are we? What's kind of being used in the industry and why and what cases? So I think, you know, again, indoor cultivation, especially, you know, I'm located on the East Coast, yeah. Bruce. And so with that, you know, obviously outdoor cultivation is much more of a challenge. You're not going to get, you know, multiple harvests in. So, you know, you, you're basically forced indoors where, we, where I am. Uh, I work with a lot of clients that do grow in greenhouses, and I think that's great for reducing cost and, and really, you know, trying to have as much sustainability going forward as possible. But most of the grows that I'm associated with really are indoor grows. I, I'm seeing a lot more of the vertical growing where people are growing uh, two and three levels, really trying to double and triple the, the canopy space, you know, in a smaller footprint in a brick and mortar type grow. With that, you know, you, you see a lot of LEDs because with the vertical growing, you have the ability to really have the light very close to the canopy in a way that you couldn't do with an HPS where you'd burn the tops of your plants. So really, I think vertical growing is is kind of the future. The ability to, to maximize space in a really efficient way to reduce the square footage you need for your site and the build-out costs that come with that. So I think as, you know, looking forward to the future of indoor cultivation, you're really, you're seeing that move to vertical growth, not just in cannabis, but even in the food production industry. Vertical growing is really becoming the norm for microgreens and leafy greens and such. So I think that's just a natural progression that cannabis is kind of following. And then I think looking more more you know forward and looking further out a little bit, as you see 
countries like Chile, Colombia, Mexico, you're going to see these countries cultivating cannabis outdoors at, at a massive scale and importing those those products into other countries. And as we become a little more, I guess, forward thinking in America and ultimately when when recreational use passes federally, I think a lot of the growers, a lot of the cultivators that are in business now are going to be forced to look to greenhouse growing, outdoor cultivation as a response to the lower price points that these imported uh, sun-grown or outdoor-grown products uh, are going to, to bring. So, you know, in the short term, I think it's an embrace of technology, try to be as efficient and, you know, really maximize the ROI on cultivation operations. And I think a little bit further out, you're going to see a return to traditional outdoor cultivation, greenhouse growing to try to respond to the lower price point that a lot of this imported product is going to bring from, you know, international growth. Yeah. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? You know, all these states have developed these kind of micro industries, micro economies around, you know, because of the the federal regulations, uh, you know, as, as we get hopefully at some point here, which we could debate that or we could talk about that, you know, if we get to some kind of federal legalization, uh, you know, what's going to happen with these growing in New Jersey? I mean, it does, you know, it's certainly if you look globally, New Jersey would not be the first place you'd want to grow cannabis. Right? There's much better places. What's going to happen with this as this plays out? So, you know, ultimately, Bruce, you know, I think so we're in a weird spot as as people in the industry, as a cultivator, as a dispensary operator, you know, I think people are embracing the, the kind of gray market niche that they have because, you know, again, the only thing keeping big tobacco, you know, or big pharma out of cannabis cultivation and the production of cannabis-based medicines, or even from a big tobacco standpoint, let's look at, you know, RJ Morris and those companies, you know, they have they have the capability to grow crops. They have yeah. the drying process. They have really an international network of retailers and, and a distribution channel that, you know, these even multi-state operators can't match. The only thing keeping those companies out of our industry is that it's illegal federally. And what I fear is when there is either descheduling or rescheduling of cannabis, once these companies feel that it's safe to kind of dip their toes in the water, it's really like just letting the 800-pound gorilla into the china shop, you know? And my fear is that there's going to be just a, a massive buyout of all these, you know, not only just the multi-state operators, but the mom and pop cannabis shops that you see in Oregon and Denver and, and Colorado, you know, areas that's a little bit more of a mature market where it's not all dominated by the multi-state operators. While there still are independent grows and, and retailers, uh, they're just going to get swept aside, you know, and, yeah. and I fear that Ultimately, when cannabis is legal to cultivate and dispense and sell at the federal level, it's going to really change the landscape for the worse. You know, I I hate to think about Walmarts of weed uh, yeah. taking over this industry and really putting profit over patients and even at the, the recreational level, just really not caring about quality so much as quantity and just really, you know, paying attention to the bottom line, not developing quality products and, you know, really a, a consumer friendly market. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of how these kind of states are being regulated and, and, and what you're seeing on kind of the, you know, how, how these are kind of playing out or how the how the local states are kind of managing their their industries from a kind of cultivation point of view. What have you seen in 
in terms of states that are doing this particularly well, or there, you know, things that you see that are not, you know, helpful to the industry in terms of, you know, how things are set up, either the licensing or testing or kind of the regulatory side. Like, what's what are you noticing about how this is playing out? Sure. So I, I think. Um what I have seen over the last, you know, let's call it 14 years, I've been on the commercial cultivation side in states that were, you know, that had a, a program earlier. I'll use Rhode Island because I'm very familiar with the Rhode Island model. You know, Rhode Island passed their law in 2006, allowing for home cultivation for patients and caregivers, which I think is fantastic. Aside from the, the fact that the cheapest way for a patient to obtain their medicine is to grow it, uh, there's a therapeutic benefit to cultivating a plant, taking something from a seed or a clone to harvest and post-harvest and actually using your own grown product. I I think there's a a therapeutic benefit similar to caring for a a pet, you know, for the patient. So I lament the fact that really you're never going to see a model where a state passes either a medical or an adult use program where there's really a robust home cultivation aspect to it. So, you know, again, I think a lot of that is due to lobbying of, of, you know, corporate entities that basically don't want people to be able to grow their own because, you know, again, it's a lot more profitable for them if they have a a truly captured audience. So from a regulatory standpoint, I would love to see more home cultivation in the bills and laws that ultimately get passed in these states. And then from the regulatory side, Bruce, what I found is there's been a shift from where the state regulators, be it, you know, health departments or departments of business regulation, where earlier on in my career, I felt like there was almost an adversarial relationship from, you know, the from our regulators to the operators. You know, they the regulators didn't really want that task. They weren't super familiar with the industry. And, you know, these are state workers, so they're already kind of overworked, understaffed and under budgeted. So they almost resented having to regulate another industry as part of their, you know, daily tasks. And then as you fast forward, I think now you're seeing more states that embrace their role as regulators. They want to put out good regulations. They want to work hand in hand, almost in a partnership with the operators for the benefit of of the patients that they represent. And I'll I'll use the example of Delaware. When I opened the dispensary in Delaware, we were a pilot program. There had been no home cultivation. So really, there was no value to holding a patient card other than, you know, freedom from arrest if you were caught with, you know, cannabis on your person. But there wasn't a way to access cannabis. So when they did license us, my group, the health department, the Office of Medical Marijuana was led by gentleman named Paul Highland, and I was super impressed with his willingness to listen and learn and understand that, you know, he wasn't a subject matter expert, but I was, and he could listen to me and I could help him really develop not only the best practices to regulate dispensaries, but even to, to, you know, setting up a testing protocol for an independent third-party lab to test product. And really with Delaware, it was night and day from what I experienced in Rhode Island, where Rhode Island was kind of resentful and adversarial uh, as far as the regulators went, where Delaware was like, you know, they they wanted everything to be world-class. They wanted to make sure that the program was going to be successful and the needs of the patients were going to come first and foremost. And 
I think that's really the way most states are kind of operating now. I see much more collaboration back and forth between regulators and operators and a mutual respect on both sides where I think there was always kind of a, you know, a little bit of hesitation or, or trepidation of interacting too much with each other. So I'm encouraged that the state of the industry right now seems to be moving more towards one of collaboration between operators regulators and ultimately the patients or or customers whether it's medical or adult use that that program serves yeah yeah curious if you notice anything in terms of the market demand you know from the cultivation side are you seeing certain types of kind of cultivars or you know particular kind of product qualities that is driving the cultivation process i mean i'm just as as this market grows i see shifts in kind of what people want to use cannabis for how they want to use it kind of the the kind of the use factors or the scenarios how, how is this kind of changing the cultivation side what are you noticing as being trends that the cultivation needs to respond to so i, I think first and foremost uh, as as cultivators and operators of cannabis businesses really education is paramount because, you know, I always like to say an educated customer is the best customer, right? So, you know, you know, in programs where there was a very nascent program, like Rhode Island, we were the first dispensary. In Delaware, we were the first dispensary. The cannabis consumer was not very sophisticated. And really, one of the challenges with product testing, and I'm a huge fan of testing, I think, to be considered medicine, we have to treat it as medicine. We have to hold ourselves to a standard that our products are safe and effective for their intended purpose. So while I, I love the fact that testing is such an important part of this industry, one of the negatives associated with it is when you put a potency label on a product, so let's use flour for instance, and no. I'm growing a, a, a strain, let's, you know, super lemon haze, and it's 18.8% THC, right? And then you have another strain, let's, you know, call it Gorilla Glue, and it's it's 24% THC. Mm-hmm. Um, nine out of 10 consumers, whether they be on the medical side or the adult use side, is going to just, you know, grab that highest potency product on the shelf. And that's really a disservice. You know, if you're, you know, I I like to make the analogy, if you're going out with your wife for a nice dinner, you know, when you're looking at the wine list, are you looking at alcohol content? Or are you yeah. looking at the legs and the nose and the, the pair? <laughs> you have anything in the fourteen percent range, <laughs> right? Right. So, so you know, it, it's funny because you know when we when we first started in Rhode Island, I'll give you an example. We had a great strain that we were running. It was a pineapple strain. It was it tasted great. It did great terpene profile. Very effective in appetite stimulation, pain relief. But it tested out around fifteen percent. Couldn't sell it. It was on the shelf. I knew it was a fantastic product. I had a lot of patients that I had used it when I was a caregiver that I was growing for them, and they all experienced great relief and results from. Yeah. But when you put it on a shelf with a with a potency label on it that isn't 20%, people turn their noses up at it. So unfortunately, until you really educate the your consumer on what really makes a cannabis strain effective, whether it's the terpene profile, whether it's the THC to CBD, you know, ratio. These are all things that kind of just kind of fall by the wayside in pursuit of that big number on the on the bottle, you know, or the jar. So unfortunately, you know, it requires a lot of education. And I think people are getting there. I think people are understanding that terpenes have a, a, a major role in the medicinal effects of a strain. But even so far as just, you know, really market demographics, Bruce, I've seen a tremendous 
explosion in the demand for concentrates. You know, I'm an old school guy. You know, I'm a big believer in flour. But if you open a restaurant and only serve what, you know, you like to eat, you're going to be out of business really quick. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, what I've seen is a lot of seniors, you know, they don't want to smoke. They're not going to be rolling joints or, or hitting a bond. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously they prefer to ingest it, whether it's through edibles or dissolvable sublingual strips, capsules, tinctures, some sublingual uh, products are big. Transdermal products are really big. But really, you know, for the rank and file dispensary or rec shop consumer, it's really concentrates. It's dabbable products. It's vape pen cartridges. It's, you know, some of the more discreet, really kind of fast acting products that, that are really in demand. And what we're seeing now in the cultivation side, a lot of growers are selecting cultivars that are great to produce oils and, and concentrates from. Not so much something that's going to have a tremendous bag appeal and, and be sold strictly as flour. So I think yeah. a lot of growers are recognizing that uh, a good percentage of their crop is ultimately going to go into concentrate making and you know being turned into medicines or products of a different ingestion option. Yeah, yeah, it's like the difference between making tomatoes to you know slice and put on a salad versus making tomatoes you're going to put into a pasta sauce. Great analogy, Bruce. That's a, a great analogy, and I think we're seeing a lot more of that where these commercial cultivators are growing strains that they know ultimately are going to be better suited to going into extractors and becoming you know dabbable products, vape pens and, and, and tinctures you know, edibles and, and other ingestion options other than the flower form that they're ultimately created from. Yeah. Yeah. So since you're in uh, Northeast New Jersey area here, I'll ask what, what's your kind of uh, prognostication on what's going to happen in the coming, we've got a ballot in New Jersey, you know, New York is, is talking about trying to pass some, some, I mean, do you think we're going to see an expansion of cannabis states in the Northeast here? I do. I, I think, you know, New Jersey's, you know, an interesting case because there's a great population density here. There's tremendous access to, you know, for people from New York, from Philadelphia, so, you know, aside from the, the real population density we have in state, we could really be, you know, a, a model for really the whole tri-state area. This program was severely suppressed under Governor Chris Christie's watch. He was not a fan of cannabis, you know, a former federal prosecutor, made no bones about, you know, his belief that medical cannabis was really just an end around to legalization and he did everything he could to really hamstring this program and it was really a shame. Our current governor, Governor Murphy, ran out a platform that he was going to legalize adult use sales in his first 100 days of taking office, which <laughs> obviously that didn't come to fruition but uh, he did oversee a, a pretty good expansion of the program. The patient population here, you know, went from under Chris Christie, there might have been three or 4,000 patients, and right now we have about 90,000 patients. So there's been a, a tremendous increase in patient population. The increase of access or increased production has not followed in a linear fashion. So there's still uh, a significant challenge for patients in the state to obtain their medicine. You know, a lot of patients are still driving an hour, an hour and a half to access medicine. There are a lot of shortages in the dispensaries. Product variety is not very good. But, you know, the operators are trying and the, the state regulators are trying to license more businesses. And so it's kind of a work in progress. So it's something I, I certainly keep a close watch on. 
I do feel very confident that, you know, we have a, a legalization ballot measure on the ballot. I do feel very confident that that will pass. And ultimately, we will create a model adult use program here in the Northeast that a lot of other states can kind of replicate and follow. So it's an exciting time to be here. I think, you know, the will of the people will obviously dictate what happens. But from the in kind of informal polling I've seen uh, and informal polling, it looks like it's carrying it over a 60 percent majority. So assuming these people show up to vote, I feel really good about the prospects of adult use passing this year. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Joel, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you and other work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Facebook. My email address is pilot, P-I-L-O-T, 1380 at gmail.com. Uh, my my personal website is under construction right now. I, I don't have a URL I can throw out there yet. Nothing's really ready, but uh, I will keep you updated on that. But any, anybody that has issues, wants to you know, ask questions, anybody interested in the industry, uh, you know, feel free to shoot me an email. I, I try my best to respond to, to the inquiries I get, you know, within a 48 to 72 hour window. But uh, always willing to talk shop with interested parties, Bruce. Awesome. Thanks, Joel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time today. You as well. Thank you so much. And God bless. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, Download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.